Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Everybody, the movie City Slickers recounts the adventures of three friends having a midlife crisis. They escape the city and head west for a two-week cattle run to discover what's important in life. Before they leave, Mitch, who is played by Billy Crystal, shares what he does for a living at his son's school for Dad's Day. But instead of talking about his work as a salesman, Mitch bewilders the third graders with a monologue about how bleak their future is. He says, value this time in your life, kids, because this is the time in your life where you still have choices and it goes by so fast. When you're a teenager, you think you can do anything, and you do. Your 20s are a blur. In your 30s, you raise your family, you make a little money, you think to yourself, what happened to my 30s? You reach your 40s, and you grow a little pot belly, and then you grow another chin. (laughs) The music starts to get too loud, and one of your girlfriends from high school becomes a grandmother. In your 50s, you have a minor surgery. You'll call it a procedure, but it's still a surgery. In your 60s, you have a major surgery. The music is still too loud, but it doesn't matter now because you can't hear it anymore anyway. In your 70s, you and the wife retire to Fort Lauderdale. You start eating supper at 2, lunch around 10, and breakfast the night before. And you spend most of your time wandering around malls looking for the ultimate in soft yogurt and wondering, why don't the kids ever call? (laughs) Finally, you reach your 80s. Now you've had a major stroke, and you end up babbling to some Jamaican nurse whom your wife hates but who you call mama. (laughs) Any questions? As someone who is rapidly approaching 60... That is pretty bleak. If we are fortunate to live that long, each of us will look back on our lives and probably wonder where all the time went. And that is the opening scene in our study this morning in our first study in the book of 1 Kings. Before we delve into verse 1, though, I feel like I need to give us a little background to set the stage. But don't worry, I'll make sure you beat the Baptist to the Cracker Barrel. The books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles are a running commentary on the history of the nation of Israel. Most Bible scholars believe that Jeremiah was the one inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this book. The books of 1st and 2nd Kings were originally just one book. It's the story of the rise and fall of kingdoms, of high promise and abject failure, of tragedy and yet of hope. Besides recording history, these books teach theology, especially the faithfulness of God in keeping his covenant, and also the sovereignty of God in directing the destinies of all nations, and the holiness of God in opposing idolatry. The dominating question of chapter 1, which arises out of the struggles of David's family, recorded back in 2 Samuel, is who will sit on the throne. In one form or another, that question will be asked 11 times. 
First Kings is a remarkable story of power and politics. We read of the rise and fall of kings, of political intrigue, violence, betrayal, and power deployed for both good and evil. We will see an empire established and prospering, and we will see that same empire collapse in ruins. It is a story of impressive accomplishments and devastating failures. And all this, that's much like any slice of human history. But there is more. This is the story of God's purpose in human history. It is a story intended to teach us and to see the human power and politics for what they really are. And it will help us to understand that the world will not be saved by human muscle and planning. There is no human hope for this troubled world. And we need to know that the best efforts of men and women will achieve little. And even what is accomplished will not last no matter who is sitting in the White House. First Kings opens at the end of David's life with one last difficulty for him to face. Once a great fighter, politician, and lover, his circulation is not sufficient to keep him warm, even with the aid of blankets. With death imminent, it is obvious that a new leader must replace King David. Who will this person be? How will they be chosen? What kind of character will they possess? Look at first one with me. The opening scenes of 1 Kings is troubling. It is a pathetic picture of weakness and vulnerability as we read. Now King David was old, advanced in age, and they covered him with garments, but he could not keep warm. Several applications instantly arise from our text. And the first is an observation. The, the kingdom of God frequently passed through precarious moments in time. It may be the passing of Joseph, which led to bondage, the death of Moses and the transition to Joshua, which later saw the burial of Joshua and apostasy to Baal worship. The situation in our text is like one of those. Here in David's looming death is a transition point in the kingdom of God. It's one of those critical situations where a wrong move, a false step, or a stupid turn could spell disaster. It seems to me that today's contemporary church could benefit much from this text. How often today are we faced with various types of crisis in a day of moral decadence, ethical relativism, and the fact that today some people don't even know what bathroom they are supposed to use. We live in a day and an age where it seems that all of society is rebelling against God's authority and against His rule and His reign. For instance, God's Word clearly says that He made us male and female Yet people want to rebel against that and change their gender, or at least pretend like it. Also, God's word clearly says that God ordained marriage to be between only a man and a woman. And yet people want to rebel and marry people of the same sex. We are living in what the Apostle Paul called a crooked and perverse generation. 
That means this morning we live among crooks and perverts. The book of 1 Kings is going to speak to this. But first, the author of 1 Kings wanted the readers to know that David is now diminished. He was coming to the very end of his life. This was the twilight of a glorious reign. But David was now so old that he could not even keep himself warm, much less rule a nation. David was about 70 at that time, which today isn't that old, but he seems even older than his years. You see, for David, it just wasn't the years. It was the mileage. He seemed to live the lives of four or five men during his lifetime. But there is more here than a shivering old man huddled among his blankets. This man was God's king. And these were the days that were spoken of the promise that his kingdom would be established forever. And we wish that we didn't have to see David in this condition. We would much rather see him as a boy fighting Goliath or as a king leading his armies out to battle. But as descendants of the fall, if we're fortunate enough to live long enough, we're all going to come to the place where our bodies and our minds are going to begin to fail us. David's feeble decline is a sad reminder of our own human frailty. What happened to him will happen to almost all of us in here. Our hearing will fail. Our eyesight will grow dim. And our limbs will get weak and brittle. And eventually we too may also be confined to a bed. And maybe we will find it hard to stay warm. All of us who are permitted to live long enough will experience something like this. Our strength of body and mind is going to wane. We may lose our independence. Whatever we have been, we will become but a shadow of what we once was. And that's where David is this morning. And we will know at some point that death is rapidly approaching the same way that David did. If you don't believe me in all that, just visit a nursing home after church and spend some time with frail old people. It's difficult to imagine what they may have been and what they had done when they were young, fit, and healthy. And we find all this confronting this morning. None of us likes to talk about this reality, but reality it will be unless, of course, we suffer what some people call a premature death. Verse 2, please. So a servant said to him, Have them search for a young virgin for my lord and king, and have her attend the king, and become his nurse, and have her lie on your chest, so that my lord the king may keep warm. So they searched for a beautiful girl throughout the territory of Israel, and found Abishag the Sunamite, and brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful, and she became the king's nurse and served him, but the king did not become intimate with her. So as David goes to bed, they pile blanket upon blanket on top of him. But the old king simply cannot get warm. His body can no longer generate heat. And so he shakes and he shivers all night long. You see, the problem with piling blankets on is they can't generate heat. They can only hold in the heat that the body generates. And in those days, there was no such thing as electric blankets or a hot water bottle 
or even the furnace man. (laughs) So, that's a shameless plug for Junior. So what to do? His servants are at a loss, so they say, hey, these blankets aren't doing any good. So let's find something that can generate some heat. Or even better, let's find someone that has some life in them. Verse 3 says, So they searched for a beautiful girl throughout the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. Now, the question that's probably going through your mind right now is, Hey, have you guys considered maybe getting one of David's wives or one of his concubines to lie next to the king? I mean, wouldn't that make a lot more sense? Why didn't they just get one of David's older wives? They probably had some meat on their bones instead of this young, thin thing. Or even better, why didn't they find one of his wives who were currently undergoing menopause and having all those hot flashes? Stick that woman beside him. David would have been kicking the covers off in no time. But could something else be going on here? Some commentators seem to think so. Sure, you can say that they love their master and want to bless him with a beautiful young woman, but some believe that these guys actually wanted to stir up David's physical being. Perhaps they thought if a beautiful young woman came into the picture, David would physically stir up in his overall health. But we're going to see that even Miss Beautiful Israel was of little help to King David. Abishag's employment as a kind of human hot water bottle raises more answers or questions than it answers. Were David's servants simply trying to keep him warm? And if so, why did they conduct a Miss Israel pageant to find the prettiest young thing in the whole country? I mean, I get it, I guess. If you're going to have an electric blanket, you may as well have a pretty one, right? And this is the king. You're not going to pull some chick off Mercer Street to keep him warm. So we see here's an old, cold king who seems not very long for this world. And we're not even sure if the stunning heater Abishag was effective. All in all, though, this is not a promising beginning. And as I said, I'm aware that a number of scholars look on these verses as some sort of virility test that David failed. I mean, if a supermodel Abishag cannot get David excited, then surely he must be on the decline. But personally, I think that is just reading that into the text. David's problem in the text is body heat, not dysfunctional sexuality. And verse 4 tells us that he did not know her, which sounds more like a simple qualification than a failure to succeed. And by the way, that was a common custom in the Middle East during that time. But there was no intimacy. She was just like a personal nurse to David. And just when you think things can't get any worse for David... We read verse 5. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. We are now introduced to Adonijah. 
Most people probably did see him as the heir apparent. And he seemed to be everything that David used to be, but wasn't anymore. The Bible describes him as a very handsome man. And he was born right after Absalom. Humanly speaking, Adonijah had everything going for him. He had all the qualifications that people usually look for. Like his older brother Absalom, which by the way is an ominous connection given that civil war that Absalom waged against his father's house. But anyway, he was easy on the eyes. Which counts for a lot more in life than what we might like to think. As far as the kingship was concerned, Adonijah looked the part, at least to the people who looked at outward appearances, which God completely ignores. Furthermore, as David's oldest living son, Adonijah was in line to be the next for the throne. He was David's fourth-born son. We know that the king's oldest son, Amnon, had been killed by his brother Absalom, who was in turn put to death. No one knows what happened to brother number three, Chiliab, who simply disappears from the story, and many believe perhaps just may have died in his youth some way. But the exact wording of his declaration gives us a window into his soul, and maybe into our soul as well, as we read. Now, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. Grammatically, the word I is in the emphatic position. We can almost imagine Adonijah pointing to himself or even thumping his chest as he said, I will be king. In every simple game of checkers, there is a thrilling moment when one ordinary playing piece suddenly is promoted to royalty. Having moved and jumped all the way to the far side of the board, a checker can become a king. King me, commands one of the players. At that point, a second checker is carefully placed on top of the first, and from then on, the new king has the power to move all over the checkerboard. The sad thing is, many people want the game of checkers to become their way of life. Not content to be ordinary, they want to be the royal center of attention. King me, they say, wanting enough power and money to get in control or buy the, all the pleasures that they want out of life. King me is what the young, young man says when he gratifies his sexual desires instead of making a selfless commitment to a woman in marriage. King me or queen me is what the overbearing mother is saying when she makes her own desires the rule of the household instead of co concentrating on the spiritual progress of her children. And king me is what I am saying whenever my own desires become my main concern, even at the expense of others. The problem with building our own little kingdoms is that we will never find our rightful place in the kingdom of God. This central issue in the Christian life is also the central issue of First and Second Kings, and it is, who will be king? 
Will we accept the kingship that God has established? Or Or will we always insist on having our own way in life? To see the shape that that self-exaltation takes in our own lives, we need to only look more carefully at the way Adonijah crowned himself king. His decision to make himself king was for his own glory and pleasure without ever for a moment submitting to God. You see, a real leader looks at a crisis and asks, what can I do that will best help the people? While an opportunist can look at that same crisis and he will ask, how can I use this situation to promote myself and get what I want? Now, opportunists usually show up uninvited, focus attention on themselves, and usually end up making the crisis even worse. Adonijah was that kind of person. As as David's eldest son, Adonijah felt he deserved to be the next one on the throne. After all, his father was a sick man who was going to die soon, and it was important that there be a king on the throne in Israel. And like his older brother Absalom, Adonijah seized this opportunity when David wasn't at his best and was actually even bedfast. However, Adonijah greatly underestimated the stamina and wisdom of the old warrior king and will ultimately pay for it with his life. Adonijah violated a basic principle in the scriptures that we should let God exalt us and never try to exalt ourselves. Listen to Psalm 75 verse 6. For exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west more from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one, and he exalts another. Later, James would say it like this, Humble yourself in the eyes of the Lord, and he will exalt you. And listen, if God isn't the one promoting you, you do not want to be promoted. I don't want to be promoted to any place that God doesn't want me promoted to. To be perfectly candid with you this morning, I had no desire to be the pastor of this church. It wasn't like I was waiting for Chris Vanover to finally die so I could take over the joint. I loved being an assistant pastor. It was all the perks with none of the problems. But Vanover tricked me, and that's another story for another time. (laughs) And one of the sad things of this is Adonijah's father, David, he did just the opposite of Adonijah when he became the king. Now, David had his faults, no doubt. But one of the outstanding aspects of the story of King David is that his elevation to the throne of Israel was remarkably Christ-like. In the story from 1 Samuel 16 through 2 Samuel 5, David's conduct under severe pressure was exemplary. He did not ever grasp at power or exalt himself or revile or threaten those who reviled him. He humbly and obediently waited, trusting God. More than once, 
He could have killed King Saul and taken the kingship. But he refused to be king that way. The very way that his son Adonijah is trying to. Many of David's psalms belong to this story. And in wonderful ways, David foreshadowed the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve. Instead, Adonijah decided to claim the throne for himself. If he won the support of his siblings, the government leaders, the priests, and the army, he could maybe pull off a coup and become the next king. And if you want people to know how important you are, it helps to have your own entourage. So Adonijah gathered his posse, so to speak, an honor guard or palace chariots with footmen to run ahead and announce his coming. Even before he arrived, people would know that someone important was on the way. And when it comes to being important in a secular sense, image is everything. If you're going to be the king, you have to act like the king, and that includes having people around you treat you like the king. You need to have some followers, and especially those who are going to tell you how great you are. But therein lies the real problem. Because you see, Israel did have a policy for royal succession, and that policy was by divine appointment. God would anoint his own king in his own good time. As it says in Deuteronomy 17:15, you shall set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. The problem is the men like Adonijah and also Absalom is they could not accept God's choice, but instead they just kept exalting themselves. They would not even wait for their father to die, but try to take by force something that was only God's to give. They have what I like to call an eye disease. Everything about them orbits around that unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. Now that sounds an awful lot like what got Lucifer booted out of heaven, doesn't it? If you're not familiar with that, let me read it to you. This is Isaiah chapter 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, here we go. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. In just four verses, we heard the word I over and over again. I, I, I. I've always found it interesting that the middle letter of the word sin is I. Now, in direct contradiction to that, in Philippians chapter 2, we are told what Jesus did instead and what is to be the goal of our lives this morning. Let me read it to you. And as I do, notice how different it is from what Adonijah and Satan tried to do. It says, 
Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out just for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who even though he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As we finish up this morning, let's not talk about Adonijah or Satan or Absalom. Let's talk about you and I. Have you ever felt that same temptation, the temptation to take what you wanted when you wanted it, instead of waiting for what God would give? Toddlers are tempted to do it by saying, that's mine, and grabbing whatever they can get. Bigger kids are tempted to do it by getting angry and sulking when they don't get their own way. Some adults are tempted to climb over others to get that next promotion or to put themselves forward for ministry without any calling from God or the church or to gain ungodly control over their spouses by manipulation or even force. We are all tempted to king ourselves that same way. We try to impress people with what we have, who we know, or how much we are doing for God. Sometimes I fear we care more about what people think of us than we really do about who we really are before God. Maybe we simply fuel our sense of self-importance by gently complaining about our heavy workload, especially the good work that we do in Christian ministry. But in one way or the other, we want people to know how good we are. And we may not do it like uh, Adonijah. We may not ride in a chariot or hire 50 men to run before us. But we do the same thing in often subtler ways. We do it with what we buy, what we say, what we wear. And the general impression we try to leave that we are something more than we really are. In one way or another, we are all tempted to exalt ourselves. All too often we are like Diotrephes, whom the New Testament describes as someone who liked to put himself first. Here is the problem with that. When we put ourselves on the throne, God at that point is no longer on the throne of our lives. He has become just another one of our servants. And rather than seeking his kingdom, we expect him to advance ours. But because God loves us, he won't play that game. And not only that, we are told that God will actively oppose the proud while faithfully exalting the humble. So this morning, let us each recommit ourselves to follow the example of him who was meek and lowly of heart and trust God to promote us to wherever he thinks best.
pray with me. Father, I admit before these people so often I am tempted to try to exalt myself, to make myself look better than what I know that I really am. Forgive me for that, Father. I'm thankful, Lord, that you look into each heart, and with you there is only grace and forgiveness if we would just confess. And so, Lord, wherever we are this morning, I know that this was a hard sermon to hear in many ways because, well, it hits home in many ways. But that's what we need, Lord. And it's not to make us condemned. It is to make us better and to make us holier, which in turn will make us joyful and peaceful. And that we could be a a witness to those around us who don't have those kind of things, that they would see a difference in us. Do that for us, O Lord. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.